Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All with Bob Schaefer. We've got a special guest today for you, uh, but before we bring him on, let Bob introduce him. I just want to say thank you to our audience, up to 51,000 subscribers, grassroots all the way up to MLB front offices. We appreciate your support because you guys, iHeartRadio took a shot on this podcast, and we now got our cup of coffee in the bigs. I need you guys' help to keep us there. Let them know they made the right choice with the network. Make sure after this show, give Bob five stars. Write some great comments underneath there because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. So with 74 countries listening to us today, Bob, we got a special guest for us today. Uh, we'll let you let you introduce your guy. Hi, we're honored to have Dan Jennings. Dan and I have been longtime friends. Uh, we work with the Nationals together. And uh, first, Dan, let me have let me have you give a resume, just a brief resume, because you've been a lot of places, and I don't know all the places, but you can give a little brief resume. But I know you've done a whole lot of things in the game, and and one of the most important guys to help a team win. Well, thank you, Shafe and David. Great to. Great to join this podcast and uh, certainly have great respect for both of you guys and and being the voice, the real voices of the game. Uh, this is my 35th year in baseball. Uh, basically have worn just about every hat uh, job-wise that you can. Starting out as an associate scout, became an area scout with Seattle, and then ultimately a cross-checker with the Mariners. From there, I went to uh, Tampa. I was the fourth ever employee with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at that time as their <laughs> director of scouting. Seven years there, went to uh, Miami as the VP of player personnel. Uh, from there, I went to the assistant GM, ultimately the general manager, and then became the field manager in 2015. And uh, then from 2016 until currently, I'm a special assistant to uh, Mike Rizzo with the Washington Nationals. And uh, just been a blessed career, 35 years, worked with some outstanding baseball people and uh, men that I have tremendous respect for that have uh, certainly paved the way and shared a lot of things with me to, to help me through these opportunities. Well, Dan and I can both say that we were fortunate to work for good organizations and we had mentors along the way. And that's one thing baseball lacks right now. They get rid of some of these older guys that have expertise and there's no one really to teach younger guys. There's a few left, but uh, it's few and far between uh, compared to what it was when I first started out. I mean, started as a coach. I learned a lot from people on the field. Then I went to scouting, learned a lot from scouts. They were veteran scouts and I picked their brains and I became, uh, you know, 43 years in baseball, and I just retired like about three weeks ago. But uh, we've been fortunate to be working uh, with good organizations and been around great people. And Dan and I respect each other. We worked together with the uh, Nationals. Like I said, our biggest claim to fame probably was we scouted, uh, Van scouted the Cardinals in Houston the year we won the World Series. A lot of fun there. That was great memories. And you know what, Shafe, anytime you can uh... – you can end the season on top of the mountain, which is what we all aspire to do at the beginning of a year. It's uh, it's certainly special, and to be able to do that with you, and I think back so many times to the, you know, the trips and the different cities and the fun, and you know, I mean, we grinded it during the games and uh, and the hours prior to, but we sure had a lot of fun afterwards, and. And to see that World Series trophy come to us in 2019 was uh, one of the special memories I have in my time in baseball. 
Like you said, we had a lot of fun along the way. I remember walking back from the subway down uh, Lexington Avenue about 2 o'clock in the morning and going to the hotel. Unfortunately, you probably couldn't do that this day and age, which is unfortunate. But uh, we go back to the hotel, sit there. Uh, Casey McKean was with us also. We go over to our reports and just kind of sum them up and uh, spruce them up and tidy them up, so to speak. But I think, you know, they gave us a lot of thanks. They said we really helped them a lot. But uh, we just had a small part in the winning because the players did it, the manager and coaches did it. But it was exciting. And probably the only World Series where the visiting team won everything. Yeah, that was, that was one of the wildest things. You you feel like home field advantage is so important. And then you uh, you start off and you win two in Houston and you lose three at home. And then you go to Houston and win two on the road and close it out and – uh, you're right. That was uh, that group of guys uh, from for that club. Um, you know, we were 19 and 31 at one time, and and the whole world was calling for Mike Rizzo to fire Davey, and Riz held tight, held firm, and uh, we knew we had a good team. I can remember you in spring training saying, "This is a good ball club. This is a 90 to 100 win team," and uh, we were just slow to find our footing. But once we did. And uh, brought in a few guys that kind of showed us the way. I think it tied everything together and the cream rose to the top. But it uh, was a great lesson in there about being patient, even when it would have been easiest to, uh, you know, to make wholesale changes. And eventually we did what we thought we could, and that was to win. Who were some of the key players in that group? And some of the guys that you brought in that helped you kind of show the way? Well, no doubt about it. The pitching staff with Max Scherzer, uh, Pat Corbin and uh, Steven Strasburg were absolutely tremendous. Um, we, we made a deal and, and brought in Geraldo Parra. And I'm going to tell you right now, personally, I've never seen one person go into a clubhouse and create a culture that just brought everyone together. Uh, we, we had leaders on that team, guys like Howie Kendrick certainly was, uh, you know, a leader that people looked up to. And I remember he and Adam Eaton created the race car driving on the bench. You know, Davey was great to let them celebrate their accomplishments inside the dugout. He didn't want anything outside the dugout where you may show up the other team. But each thing kind of created its own entity in itself. And with Para. His, uh, his daughter's favorite song was the, the Baby Shark. And man, this thing, it, it took a life of its own. And it became, uh, it became kind of the battle cry, especially at our home ballpark in Washington. And, uh, you know, then at the deadline, we made a few trades to shore up the bullpen. And just it, it all started to click. And it started to roll. The pitchers jumped up. And, man, we were getting... Uh, six, seven innings a night from our starting pitching. You had Anthony Rendon, who who had a monster year. Juan Soto, obviously. Victor Robles, tremendous in center field. Trey Turner, just fabulous at shortstop. And so everybody played to the level of their ability as we got past those first 50 games. And when that started to happen, uh, we we would go on long runs, and we, we ended up winning a lot of series, which ultimately is what you try to do over the course of 162. Well, like you said, the most important thing, I think everyone were basically gamers, but everyone made a contribution. There were unselfish players. 
they did what it took to win the game. And the stats took care of themselves. But, uh, you know, talk about Parra. You know, we got him from the Giants, and I talked to Bochy about him before we got him. And Bochy and Ron Wotus, they both said, this guy's great. He's great with the Latin players. They take charge of him. He's a great influence. He's a great mentor. And he said, tell you what kind of guy he was. One day he hit a uh, line shot to right center field, and the guy made a circus catch on him. He came in a dugout, and the guy said, oh, that's way to hit the ball. He said, no, it's, it's not a, it wasn't a hit. It's, you know, I don't care how hard it is. It's going to be a hit. But that's his mentality. You know, it's like he wanted results. He didn't care about exit velocity or all that kind of stuff that is big in the game today. But uh, but Parra is a part-time player. was a great influence, a great, you know, just a, you know, hidden gem, so to speak. But very well respected and, and did a job when he had his chance to play. Absolutely. And then, you know, at the trade deadline, say if we go out and get uh, Daniel Hudson and bring him in and he – he becomes a big piece of our bullpen and uh, just tremendous the way he stabilizes there in the bullpen. Um, just, you know what, it, it worked out in a great way. It may not have been the sexiest sexiest of names at that time, but it was what we needed to put that puzzle together and complete us. I think that's an important point to our audience. We've got a lot of, uh, again, grassroots to front offices. We've got the year of a lot of people, but young kids trying to understand how they make their way in the game, albeit a player or whatnot. It's not always about getting the best player. It's about getting the right player. And that kind of starts out with, with the uh, associate scouts. I mean, you started your career, Dan, as an associate scout, high school coach, and worked your way all the way up to the, to the top of the ladder. What, what does an associate scout do? It doesn't exist anymore, right? Or very, very rare. Uh, you know what? I, I think now they're more of a contact. You know, you utilize uh, area scouts that work for a ball club, utilize contacts. You know, your territory so big, you can't be everywhere in one day. Uh, when I started out, you know, a lot of people referred to them as bird dogs. Um, the gentleman that I began helping uh, was with the Cincinnati Reds, who later became their scouting director by the name of Julian Mock. And essentially, I just helped in about a area of about a 100-mile radius uh, just to give him another set of eyes when he was gone from the area where I was working. And uh, in the summer times, I would help him run tryout camps all through the southeast. And uh, in doing that, it helped me to to learn, you know, things I needed to know from an evaluation standpoint and ultimately led me to my first full-time job, which was with the Seattle Mariners. So the grassroots of any successful organization is by far the area scout. And the, the most important thing that they can do is what you just alluded to with our club. They can get you the right guys that are made the right way, what we like to call makeup. And uh, the many years that Shafe had in the big leagues, you know, ball players who are winners, there are winning players and that's driven by their makeup. You know, how, what do they do in tough situations? How do they respond to adversity? How do they handle failure? Are they a good teammate? You know, do they encourage other guys? And when you're with someone for that many days, six months out of a year, trying to uh, ascertain a championship, it's important to create the right people in there and create that culture that it takes to be successful and win. I think, uh, Dan, you know, we both go back with uh, 
most important thing is that we both started at the grassroots. You know, you started as an associate scout. I started as a high school coach. We worked our way up. So we realized how important it was to work your way up. But we realized as we look backwards what those guys actually do behind us. Too bad, you know, right about this time, sometimes in baseball now, guys, excuse me, guys get a job and they want to be, you know, a scout one year. They want to be the scouting director next year. They want to be the general manager year after that. Instead of paying their dues and going one step at a time and learning their profession, and those are the successful people. We talked about managers last week. You know, Jim Leland, he managed several years in the minor leagues and became one of the best uh, managers in the big league. So it's very important for these young guys to get their foot in the door and work their way up one step at a time. And now when they get there, they know what's behind them, what it took to get there, and they can help other people who are on their way Absolutely. up. Absolutely. You know what? It, it Just like anything, it takes time to learn your craft and – in our day, experience was revered. I couldn't wait to get to ballparks or to our org meetings and get around the veteran baseball people. They would share with you stories, both successes and failures that you could learn from and, and hopefully prevent you from making mistakes. And in those stories, you created a camaraderie and there was always lessons because that Again, I go back to experience was revered. And in our game today, we've lost that. And it's unfortunate because I think there's so many avenues where you could help young uh, personnel who's just coming in the game that aspire to lead a department or aspire to be a general manager. But they need to learn the craft. And I was very lucky and thankful that in each of those levels for me, I was there seven or eight years as an area scout, as a scouting director, as a VP of player personnel. And along the way, you learn things that you need to know that ultimately led me to the GM's chair because when I would ask the staff members to do things, it was something that somewhere along the way I had had to do myself. And I think you have a greater appreciation and understanding of what it is that you're asking your people in your organization to do to help carry out the mission that you're on. Yeah, you know, one time when I was uh, director of player development, we only had like, a, I think AA had like 23, AAA, 23, 24 players. We're fighting to have 25 players because you always had to have two catchers. And if one get hurt, you got to go get a catcher in the middle of the night. To fill that spot. So we wanted, you know, one extra player, two extra players, make it 25. And it was up to the general managers. At that time, we polled the general managers. And all those general managers, except for maybe two or three, were either a scouting director or a director of play development at one time. In other words, they paid their dues. Now, I don't know how many have that background. I mean, Rizzo was a scouting director, of course, but there aren't too many general managers that have that background. They went from, uh, well, I don't know, Harvard or Yale, and maybe two years later, the general manager. But it's just like major league managers. When you see a guy get a job as a major, major league manager with no minor league management experience, it's just that they're about, to, you know, it's a failure. It's, most of the time they fail because, you know, playing and coaching and managing is a different profession. And you just hate to see guys get these jobs that really they're not ready for them. And they go out there and they, they make a bad reputation for themselves because they, they screw up. Hey, book, book smarts is one thing, but it is completely different from street smarts or baseball smarts. And, it's hard to think of running an organization when you haven't managed a department, when you don't have enough life experiences 
to help your personnel through things that come at them uh, as they're doing their job. And, uh, you know, I know book smarts, again, that's one thing and it's good and it's good to have. You need some of that in your organization. But the experienced teacher is, for me, the greatest teacher of all time. Who were some guys along the line that helped you grow from, you know, associate scout to area scout to cross checker? What were some of those? Who were those? Some of those people that had the experience that you clung to, and some some tidbits you learned. Uh, from hands them? down, the greatest influence in my professional baseball career was a gentleman by the name of George Zura, who at one time was king of baseball. Uh, he actually received that title at the winter meetings one year in um, in Nashville. But George took me under the wing. He was a mentor. He was part of the uh, Big Red uh, Big Red Machine in Cincinnati, and just a tremendous teacher. He he spent more time <clears throat> talking about failures that he made versus his successes, which were numerous. And also during that time, my scouting director in uh, in Seattle was a guy named Roger Youngward. Roger was responsible for drafting Griffey Jr., A-Rod, Strawberry, and his list is just beyond comparison. He truly is a Hall of Fame evaluator and one of the finest people that I've ever been fortunate enough to be around. And then when I became a scouting director, uh, George Zuraw lived down in uh, Inglewood, and during the winter months, he would drive up to uh, to Tampa, St. Pete area, and once a week we would go to lunch with George Kissel, and I became very good friends and close with George Kissel, who's known as the father of player development. And I got to tell you guys, I was sitting there as a 36, 38 year old guy listening to these guys' knowledge and what they shared with me. Sometimes our lunches would go three and four hours, just fabulous context of what they would share and diagrams. And Kissel had this book, this black book that became known as the Baseball Bible. And finally, one year, I, I mustered up enough courage to ask him if I could get a copy of it. And uh, he did. He gave me the book and I went and copied it. And when you look at guys like him who had such a huge influence on development of players and the game of baseball itself, he was so far ahead of his time knowledge wise that you just realize how blessed you are to get whatever smattering of what he could offer you. And you could incorporate that into your uh, repertoire. Well, no doubt about it. I'd mentioned his name many times in the show. He was uh, a big influence on me, my baseball playing career. When I signed with the Cardinals, he was the manager in the rookie league there. I played three games for him. They sent me up, but he was always around after that. And to me, he should be in the Hall of Fame, no doubt about it. He's probably the best teacher ever. He's touched a lot of lives, the guys in the big leagues, coaches, and uh, throughout baseball itself. But so what happened when I'm coaching, I get to finally get to the big leagues after uh, eight years in the minor leagues. And uh, John Walton hired me as a coach. So he got fired his, his fourth year there, and I took over as general I mean, as uh, interim manager. Then Hal McRae took over. Well, I knew when Hal took over, you know, he had his buddies, which I didn't have any problem with that because that's how it should be. So Eddie Brinkman, who I knew from before, he's scouting, and 
I used to talk to him all the time. I said, Shafe, be a major league scout. That's the best job in baseball. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. So, you know, I didn't want to go back. I had a couple offers to go back and manage AAA, but, you know, I had done that. And, uh, you know, I never played in the big league, so I thought it'd be a little tougher to get back to the big leagues or become a manager in the big leagues for sure. So I took a job as a, a major league baseball scout. Well, I didn't know what I was doing. So I go to West Palm. That's where they, they sent me. And, you know, Eddie Lyons was there, Jimmy Stewart, and uh, – the other guy with the Phillies, uh, the one arm guy, I always forget his Uncle, name. But Uncle Huey I sat down. Huey, yeah, Huey. So I sat down with them and I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I remember Ed Lyons said, Well, first of all, you got to learn how to do your expense account. Count your money when you leave and you know, have more money when you come back or as much money anyway. But, you know, you picked their brains about everything and they, you know, they helped me. They're experienced veteran scouts. And that's how I learned a lot about scouting. And Bill LaJoy was probably my best mentor in baseball. Of course, his general manager, he hired me and managed a double-A team in uh, 1986, it was. But Bill Joy was, you know, again, a veteran baseball guy. He was a school teacher like I was. He managed a little bit in minor leagues, became a general manager, and then became a hell of a scout. But, you know, those are the guys I give credit to for getting me to where I am. I, I learned from them. I picked their brains, and they're very uh, cordial and, you know, very giving. In other words, they try to help me. And... That's how it happens. But unfortunately, in this day and age, a lot of those guys get fired too soon or retired too soon. And there's no one really, not many teachers left for the young guys breaking in. And young guys breaking in, I mean, again, they want to go from the scout to the general manager in, in two years. But it's nothing like experience, nothing like learning from the ground floor up and, and get a good background and things will take care of itself. Yeah. Hey, what's a crotch checker do? So I, when I became a uh, scouting director, I tried to change the name of our cross checkers and make them comparison scouts. And when I say that, they're responsible. The way we had it broke up, we had uh, we had guys that were responsible for one third of the country. And essentially, you compare player X in Florida with player Y in Rhode Island, and you try to put your list together, comparing their abilities, their tools and how you see them or what you feel like they'll become, you know, projecting them out three, five years from now. And um, I, I was such a big proponent of the area scout and what they meant to our process. Uh, we, when we were together in Tampa, we signed 54 kids that ended up playing in the major leagues. And I attribute that to just tremendous, tremendous scouts in the area and a cross-check system or comparison scout system that would, if we had a two-grade or more difference in a player and a scout's territory, every Monday night we would have these conference calls, and I would send a different cross-checker in to get a look because I wanted to respect the area scout's opinion so that we got the player right on our board. So you essentially, as a cross-checker, are a comparison scout, and you give comparisons of the players in your territory. And then when you bring everyone in for the draft, you have to mesh three territories together and create one big board with all the guys. Yeah. And, and share just a little bit about the grading system. You mentioned, you mentioned a two-grade difference. Uh, I don't know if we've done that in detail, Bob on the show, but I think our audience would like to hear that the two to eight. Yep. So baseball for the most part, Dave and Bob, you know, this uh, grades either two to eight or 20 to 80 
and allows you to use increments of five. Um, essentially, they're the same with two being poor and eight being the absolute best. And, um, you know, you try to draw from your past experiences, you know, having a frame of reference as you gain experience and see different levels from high school all the way to the major leagues increases that frame of reference so that you can have uh, a, a better understanding of what an average curveball is. What is a 50 curveball? What is 50 power equated to distance and production? What is a 50 hitter? What is a 60 hitter utilizing components that make a good hitter of bat speed, aggressiveness, balance, all of these things. And so what you try to do is put a grade on the tools. As I was told from the very first day I started, stick with the tools. The tools are what play in the major leagues. And sometimes some guys may only have one tool that's above average, but it's uh, it's so much that it's enough to keep you there in the big leagues and allow you to be productive. Now, we're all out there searching for the five tool players, the Griffey Juniors and, and A-Rods and Josh Hamiltons. There's not many of those guys. So uh, when I was in Tampa, we used to utilize – a uh, profile based upon what position they played. Uh, Bill Livesey, who come over from the New York Yankees and was very instrumental in the core four that the Yankees had for so long, shared a lot of that. Bill was an ex-teacher, as Bob alluded to, tremendous baseball guy. And we tried to put, put tools and put players in positions where their tools best fit. Um, and, and the one thing that I got from Roger, and if you watch baseball as much as we all do, there's a rhythm to the good players. And I'm a huge, huge believer in baseball rhythm. And you, you know it when you see it. Guys have rhythms in their swings and their deliveries, how they run, how they range in the outfield to run down balls. And it's almost as if they're giving little to no effort, but they're just blessed with such great rhythm that the skills and the tools take over and you have a very productive major league player. You know, the thing is uh, scouting, I never scouted amateurs and think it's a different profession all the way. And I think that's the most important scouting or the most important scout in the organization, the amateur, amateur guy, he's a guy that finds them. But a good scout is projects. He projects what the guy can be. You can look at stats. They'll tell you what he was or what he is. But projecting is the most important thing, whether it's the big leagues or amateurs. And uh, I know as a major league scout, scout of some minor league teams also, you kind of look at what can this guy be? And basically, what can he do to help your team win? I mean, the stats are one thing. Everybody looks at stats. You know, some of these stats now, exit velocity, spin rate, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not so sure about them, but uh, – yeah, to see what a guy can do in tough situations, but to project what he can be two years, three years, five years, or one year. I mean, I had to scout the low minors this year. It was tough for me to see some of these kids who are really raw, but some stand out. And there's tools and there's skills. Some guys have great tools, but they get developed the tools and the skills. And that's where the guy becomes a good player. And like you said, there's not many five-tool players or five-skills players, but a good scout has a knack of doing that. And Dave, we talked before about this kid, Carter. Yeah. I mean, you know the background. He came from nowhere, right? No one knew about him. 
He's not on, I did some research, he's not on any Baseball America top 500. He's not on any perfect game, anything. He didn't play in any of those. He was uh, plucked out of Tennessee by a former minor league player who happened to run into his family and start coaching him a little bit and just made the call. Similar to what you described, Dan, as the, the old bird dog scout, but it, was, it wasn't uh, officially named, but... Boy, this kid's, what, 20 years old, 21 years old? And I think the Texas Rangers have their left fielder for the future. That's a great story. That's a great scouting job or projecting job. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's enough area scouts that remain. Like when I was playing, the same scouts were on all the time. They are like 50, 60 years old. They had a network. They talked to umpires. They talked to coaches. They talked to everybody. But they had, like, one guy that had New England. I'm from Connecticut. They all had New England. And I knew most of them because I was, you know, a draftable player up there and I went to UConn and so forth. But they had a network and they uh, they knew. They knew the players and they got to know them because in those days, well, I was in the first draft in 1965. But before that, you could sign a kid because you liked to scout or because, it, you know, you got to know the kid and what he had inside him. But uh, now it's a different story, I think, right, Dan? I mean, these area scouts, there's still some to stay there, but a lot of them becomes cross-checkers or – you know, major league scouts or minor league scouts. Yeah, a lot of times because you uh, financially, you know, in the pecking order of how a scouting department works, you couldn't pay the area scouts because it would throw your system out of whack. So to justify elevating their pay, you elevated them to a different position, which sounds good in theory, but the reality is there's nothing more important than that grassroots of finding them as you guys are alluding to with, uh, you know, in Evan Carter's case. So it's um, the area scout is just so vital to the long-term success. You know, you look at the Atlanta Braves and what they've been able to do. And now they've got so many of these young guys signed to long-term deals and that's a tribute to their scouting department, both uh, domestically and internationally. And they've got guys, uh, at least position player-wise, that they're going to be around a while and they are a force to reckon with. And you're starting to see some of that show up now in the postseason. You've got Texas, Arizona, and Baltimore, three teams that two years ago, each of them lost 100 or more games. And now they're in this postseason, and Baltimore wins over 100. Uh, it looks like Arizona and obviously Texas, they're moving on to the next round, and they've basically been able to do this with a lot of their uh, young, homegrown talent. And you just tip your hat and go, boy, that's going to be something fun to watch for a long time. All right, let's talk about the playoffs right about now. Let's get some ideas what you guys think about the playoffs, the way they're running. Where are they going? What do you got there? Well, I'll just say this, Shafe, and I'll go to my grave saying this. You can tell me anything you want about uh, spin rates and this and that and third time through. And again this year, it's been proven that there is nothing more important in the postseason to have success than starting pitching. Now, I watched Nate Evaldi last night and – you know what, you get starters that run guys out there and at minimum they get through five or into the sixth or seventh inning. You save your bullets in your bullpen. You don't tax those guys. You put up a few runs and you got a chance to win the ball game. I mean, it's hard to win over the course of 162. 
it magnifies itself 50 times over in the postseason. And I just watched just the other night, Dusty Dusty Baker continues to run a starter out there in Javier, uh, um, Christian Javier. He walks a few guys, but instead of having a quick trigger and pulling him and going to your bullpen, Dusty shows confidence and patience, and he allows him to go. He fought through some tough spots, and they end up winning the game. And you know what, Shafe, and you know this because you've done it. No one is going to know the makeup of that team and especially a, a player like the manager. And sometimes you got to allow that manager the latitude to go, you know what, I know what the measurements say. By God, I'm going to ride with you right here. Go get them. And well, that's the thing. I mean, it's a people game, and a good manager looking at a guy's eyes, and you could tell if the guy's, you know, if he's done or not. But like Bochy left the other night, he left the guy in, believe it, in like three or maybe four innings. I forget his name now, but left-hander. You said his name before, Dave. Montgomery. But he yeah, left him in Montgomery. there. Huh? Cody Bradford. That was Bradford. Bradford. Yeah, Bradford. So Bradford came he in and he pitched three field. innings and, you know, he pitched very important innings there. And uh, but Bosch left him in there. And that's, that's you know, he trusted him. And unfortunately now, I mean, just like the guy from Toronto, he took uh, Berrios out after, what, three and a half, four innings? He had 40-something pitches. He took him out because a left-hander came up. And that was orchestrated supposedly before the game started. Well, you know, you can use all this stuff before the game starts. But once the game starts, you got to use your head, you got to use your brain, you got to use your heart. And you got to watch the game and see what's going on. And this third time through the lineup, I think that's bogus too. Okay, stats might show he's not quite as effective, doesn't have quite as much stuff, but good pitchers will figure it out. They'll take a little bit off their fastball, they change speeds, and take a little bit off rather than add, try to add something to it. And that's what Granky always did, who's to me one of the smartest pitchers ever in baseball. Same with uh, Maddox. They take something off rather than try to add because when they add, it flattens out. But they don't give him a chance to do that. And to have it orchestrated before the, before the game starts and know what you're going to do once it gets into it, not taking into consideration its present circumstances or how the game's going. It just, to me, it's like robotic yeah. managing. You know what? It's good to have those conversations. I think probably pitching coaches and managers and general mm-hmm. managers, whoever's involved, have the conversations. They're good. They're healthy. They prepare you. But there is no one in that dugout other than that manager that has a feel for in the moment. And sometimes in the moment will change anything that you've had pregame conversation because the manager is in there with a feel and a pulse on the game and what's going on with each individual player. Yeah, No doubt about it. I mean, I think the manager, especially younger guys, inexperienced guys, are afraid to get second guess because all the guys in the press box, uh, we all said it, the game gets easier the farther away from the dirt you get. And they're going to they're gonna second guess. If you leave a pitcher in too long, they're going to say, why don't you take him out? But very rarely they say, why are you take it out so soon? But there's some instances that – see, the big thing about starting pitching, like everybody says you need starting pitching. With good starting pitching, you can use your bullpen where you want to use them. If you take a uh, starter out in the fourth, fifth inning, like a lot of teams do, or, you know, now you got to go to your fifth inning guy in the fourth inning, your seventh inning guy in the sixth inning. So, you know, you run out of times. And I see these guys go through pitchers, a new guy every inning. Now, if the guy gets nine, ten pitches, throw him back out there again. But they keep going through somebody until they find somebody that doesn't have anything, and they lose the game. But the starting pitch is the most important thing. And you starts in the minor leagues, where they train them in the minor leagues. But unfortunately, the minor league games I've seen, 
five innings, see you later. 70 pitches, see you later. Maybe double A, triple A, 80 pitches, maybe 90 pitches. But there's nothing wrong with letting a guy go 110, 115, 120. Just watch him. If his arm's dropping or he's losing his legs, well, he's done probably. But let him figure out how to get out of a jam. You talk about Dusty. We had Strasburg over there when Strasburg was a younger guy, first started. Dusty let him pitch out of a six-inning jam. It didn't work out too well. He didn't get out of it, but he let him try to get out of it. And I, I thought that helped Strasburg a lot. And I even told Dusty that. I said, you know, I really uh, commend you for leaving him stay and let him stay in and try to figure out how to get out of it. And I think it made him a better pitcher down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, the, the manager's feel for what's occurring at that time during the course of that game, it's huge. And look, there's places for everything, you know. We all talk about analytics and the measurement and all of those things. I think there's places for it. But just like when your parents teach you to cross the street, you know what they tell you? Look both ways. And that's what you have to do when you're making decisions regarding analytics and evaluation because not everybody can evaluate, but everyone can measure. Well, I think for coaches, I mean, your job is to make guys better. And sometimes you got to leave them in there. There's strategical decisions and there's psychological decisions. But if you leave a guy in and go out to the house, hey, you all right? Yeah, okay, good. Throw three fastballs by this guy. I, mean, I did that a couple of times in my leagues. But do what you got to do. Just, you know, figure it out. And uh, I think more coaches, especially in the minor leagues, at lower level, you got to teach guys, you give them a chance to figure it out. And if they figure it out, they feel a whole lot better about themselves. And But you look at, you know, stats, look at uh, media guides, look at some of the young starting pitchers. They never experienced the seventh, eighth, for sure, the ninth inning. Because they've never been there, they're always out of game by then, and that's not how you learn. I mean, you got to learn when it, you know, when it's on the line, when the game's on the line, late in the game. You know, some of those guys never had to feel the bun. Not that they bun anymore, but you know, eight, nine, ten, you might have to feel the bun. But they're already out of game by then. And you know, pitch count to me is a guideline. I think it's overrated in a lot of ways. Again, I think a good manager, a good pitching coach, should watch the game, watch the pitcher, and see what's going on. See if he's losing it. See if he's losing his legs. You're getting tired. If he's elevating the ball, then you know he's getting tired. But give him a chance to get out of jams. How about this playoff format? Um, it doesn't – and, again, it could be just circumstance, but it doesn't look like the teams that got the buyer at any type of advantage. I agree. We talked about that last time. And, yeah, that that five games off or six out of seven days off, it's detrimental to the hitters especially. The pitchers can maybe, you know, survive that. But, you know – I don't know what the answer is. I think the best answer is have eight teams. Start with eight. So you get every team is playing, you know, right away. Now, that's a lot of teams. But another way is like they do in golf, the FedEx Cup. The guy who wins the FedEx or, you know, gets the most points, he starts with, I think, minus 10 for yeah, for a score. And it works down the line a little bit. I mean, that's a pretty good advantage. But in four rounds, he starts off as minus 10. Well, maybe, you know, if you do that in baseball, you can have a team start off with, Somebody runs in, you know, to start the game with or something. I mean, it'd be kind of ridiculous to think of doing it, but somehow you got to have an advantage of winning the playoffs. I mean, winning your division and then also not having to uh, sit down for five, six days before you play a game. It's, uh, I've been blessed to be part of two World Series champions, and on both times we had to fight our way in as a wild card. And, uh, you know, in talking to the players, you just they, – they are so routine-oriented and especially at that time of the year because they've been doing it six months. And when you break that routine and as a hitter, you lose that timing or that rhythm of a swing, you know, you, you can, uh, 
you can play inner squad games and do things, you know, uh, have simulated batting practice, but you can't create that same intensity that comes from a postseason game. And I think that uh, it's a detriment for teams that get a long window of time because that edge is taken away a little bit. What do you think, Dave? I was going to say, is there something to the the concept, that, and I've heard this since I was a kid, baseball is a game that's meant to be played every day. Right. I mean, a good example of that, the Atlanta Braves. Those players played almost every day. The whole lineup played almost every day. Other teams, you know, they got to have a rest. If you had a, you know, a guy said, well, he needs a day off. Well, he doesn't need a day off, but, you know, they give him a day off. But you look at the Braves and then their starting lineup, you know, then a few guys here and there that played almost every day of the season. And, you know, I heard uh, Setker talk one day and he said, you know, the players like to play every day because they learn how to stay in shape that way. And some days they go a little harder, like Ripken always said. Some days I run a little bit more than other days. Some days I don't run hard at all, but I know how to handle my body. He played a zillion games in a row. So there's something to be said about going out there every day. Now you lose five, six days in a row or four days, whatever it was. Now you got to restart again. And like Dan said, yeah, inner squad is not the same. It, it's, it's the next best thing, but it's not the same. So somehow they got to eliminate those long layoffs. And uh, I don't know how to do it, but, you know, when you have six teams, there's two teams that don't play and four teams that play each other. So eight teams might be the answer. Now, nobody wants to see everybody. It's tough enough. I mean, it's easy to get into playoffs now, but it makes the end of the season a lot more exciting. So maybe that's the answer. I got a headache when you started doing that FedEx Cup thing, <laughs> adding runs. To See, I know Shafe was going to be in golf in here somehow. <laughs> that was pretty good the way they did it. I mean, yeah, they, they rewarded the guys who won all season. And uh, it was pretty good the way they did it. And uh, I don't think he could do it in baseball, but, it's, you know, something along those lines could be pretty nice. Oh, I almost disconnected you here when you started talking about that stuff. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> what about the, and I want to get to, we, we've got a, a question from the audience for Dan. I know he's got a story about it, but, you know, we talk about, I love the phrase that experience was revered. And, you know, you talk about these managers, Dusty Baker, Bruce Bochy, they're, they're watching the game. And the reason they're able to do that is because they've had the necessary experiences, as you described, Dan and Bob, that you've, you've started at a certain point. There wasn't such a, a need for immediate instant gratification like there's for now. So you had those necessary experiences to rely upon. Looking at the minor league system, you know, and thinking about it from a business standpoint, when you want to increase that type of experience, you usually expand the entry point where major league baseball's reduced it. We don't have a lot of, you know, we've reduced minor league, we reduced the draft that takes away guys, you know, like Bob mentioned, guys that have got the experience to teach the players or the younger coaches, scouts, et cetera. Um, what are your thoughts on that? The reduction of the draft, the reduction of the minor league system. How important is that entry point? I guess that's a better way to ask it to, to major league baseball. I, in the I minor don't leagues. like it. I think it hurts. It hurts the growth of the game. Um, <clears throat> having the lower level teams is so much better for the younger kids. You know, your Latin program and your, your the kids you draft in high school, they need, especially on the front end, on the front end, they need levels to play that are going to be more uh, uh, age-friendly of, of the skill level where they are. And having these kids that, you know, they get, they get a low level uh, coming straight out of the Dominican Summer League, and then they have to go right into uh, 
the Florida State League or something of that nature, man, that that first year, even second year, there's going to be a struggle that mentally creates issues that make it difficult for these guys to learn their craft, get the necessary at-bats and or innings. And you know what? I don't care how much money you pay these prospects to come in. It still takes the same amount of time, at-bats, innings, to develop them and allow their skills to grow to become what they need to be. Well, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, the whole game is built around confidence. And uh, you bring a kid in out of college, out of high school, an American kid. Now he's going in there. I mean, he can't come out of high school. All he knows he can play in high school. So he goes to a level in, you know, rookie league. All right, so he does decent. Not great, but decent. Next thing, he's got to jump to almost two levels because they eliminate that one after rookie league, that New York Penn League and, you know, the low half-year A-league. So, I mean, you got to, it, it takes confidence, and you got to go almost one step at a time with some players. I mean, some players had no prospects all the way to the big leagues. They figure it out after the third or fourth year. I know when I played, every day I thought I was going to get released my first couple of years, first year when I played because you don't know. But the more experience you have, the more confidence you get, the better chance you have of reaching your skill level. And to eliminate those teams, I think, is a disservice to young players. And, uh, and you know, this whole thing about well, there's only so many prospects on each team. But there are a lot of these veteran players, especially AAA, some AA, that know how to play the game. They don't have enough skill to play in the big leagues, but they know enough skill to make the other guys better. They can throw breaking balls when they're behind the count. They can do certain things and make the, uh, the younger players or inexperienced players a better player right away. But now we're potentially expanding at the top uh, potential franchise in Nashville, um, which doesn't make, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we're expanding. Nashville's a great city, but uh, you think you want to grow the bottom before you grow the top. We've got, we got a question from the audience, Dan, and uh, Bob, I want you to weigh on this too, if you, if you, if you, if you choose to, and it's a college football question, but it does trickle into baseball. Um, our audience is, is curious as to what your thoughts are on the Deion Sanders phenomenon. He's taken the college football world by storm. I mean, the, the Colorado is, I think they're at 500 right now, potential bowl team this year. But, I mean, he is, uh, the, it was the largest viewing audience. I found myself up at 2 o'clock in the morning watching their overtime loss to, I think it was, uh, I can't remember, it was Colorado, Colorado State um, early in the season. But what, what's your thoughts and what's your connection to Deion? Well, I – a dear really? friend of mine by the name of uh, Robert Pucci Hartsfield, longtime manager and scout, uh, actually signed Dion um, out of Florida State. And he raved about this kid's work ethic. Uh, certainly his speed was game changing. Um, but when he got into the minor leagues, his teammates absolutely loved him. But he had created something for himself. <clears throat> by marketing himself when the cameras turned on and, and truly is a marketing genius. Run the clock forward now. He goes to Jackson State to coach at a uh, historical black college, creates a great <clears throat> mindset and a culture, gets the opportunity at Colorado, and here is a prime example of being able to change a culture by creating positivity by putting a standard in front of the, the players and going, this is where we aspire to be. This is where we're going to be. And 
his outwardly confidence for me, especially in this generation today, these kids feed off of it. And I think you're only going to see Dion and the Colorado continue to grow. And quite honestly, I think it's going to lead him to a huge school uh, and give him an opportunity to do something very special. Well, I agree. I think, you know, confidence is the most important thing in any kind of sport, but he brings that confidence. He's self-confident himself, but it's contagious. And I think these players go out there thinking that they know and they can win. And if you have, you're not confident, you probably think you'll lose. But he brought that upbeat confidence level and let's go, let's do this, let's do it. And they believed in him and they believed in themselves and they've been very successful. I mean, they're on demand a lot of places, a lot of teams against a lot of teams, I think, but same token, they're going to play with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of confidence, and get the most out of what ability they have. And he's fun to watch. My, my favorite quote, maybe of all time, is when he says, don't let my outwardly confidence interfere with your insecurities. I love it. <laughs> and you're right. He's, uh, in today's world, uh, a strong male is rare. Um and I'm, I'm glad these kids are responding to it as well. But yeah, I, I, I'm curious to see what his next step is because he is, as you said, he's he he plays the game and he coaches the game. I mean, old school. It's it's you know he talks about dress codes. You mentioned UPS. He's like if my if these kids they're going to wear uniforms the right way because if they go work for UPS someday, they don't get to wear one sock up, one sock down, the pants around <laughs> and any way they want. They're going to dress appropriately whether they're there on Wall Street. Okay. So. I love those. And then, but of course, when he turns the camera on, he's, he's coach prime. Now he's got the, the, the hoodie on. And my, I guess my last question with him is with, with him having all those attributes that we, we talk about and we admire, how, why is he so polar? Why are there so many people that are, they either love him or hate him? Well, like in baseball, you know, I wouldn't say he's the most popular player, but I remember talking to Don Manley when he played with the Yankees, he said, I love this guy. He's a great teammate. Everybody loves him. But, Visiting teams didn't like him too much because some of his antics, but, you know, he, he was a great teammate. And that's what it's all about, being a good teammate. So they really liked, liked him playing with him. And I think you ask anybody to play with him, they all like him. And there's a lot of players like that. Brzezinski was a guy that we played against. And, you know, you play against him, you don't like him. But if he's on your team, you love him. But but Dion is a dynamic guy, no doubt about it. He's got a lot of his ability. He was in Bo Jackson's shadow a little bit. I mean, both tremendous athletes. I think Bo was better, stronger. But Dion was – Everybody's good in his own way, you know, playing both ways on football and playing, you know, good baseball player. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I've talked to so many of his ex-teammates. Uh, unbelievable worker, <clears throat> just respected the game, and his teammates absolutely loved him. I, I think of it this way, Dave. I think you got a lot of people, and it's just our society. People look for failure. They want to see you fail. They hate the fact that he's outwardly that confident and successful because they can't do it. So what do they do? They take shots and, and that's sad. They, they, they should look at it and go, man, you know what? He's got it figured out. And the lessons that he's teaching these kids are invaluable. Yeah. I think I, that's a message I think to the kids in our audience and I give it to mine as well. When you're doing well, just be leery of those people that don't want to compete against you, but their first their first method is to try to pull you down a little bit and drag you down so that they can compete or they feel a little bit better about who they are, which is unfortunate. Well, Bob, we've kept Dan for almost an hour today. What what uh, got any last questions for him or any parting shots? Either one of you guys. It's been a great, great interview. Well, again, Dion, 
I think I hope he stays there four or five years. I think continuity would be great. Just see what he can do. You know, four years. I'm sure he's going to have offers because he's dynamic and he's done a hell of a job. But uh, I, I really think stability is a big thing in, for the university and, and what he's grown there. To stay there, you know, he's only been there in one year and he recruited like crazy. And he probably recruited such that he might change that rule now, the portal rule or whatever it's called. But anyway, I think it was a good show. Appreciate you being on, Dan. Uh, we uh, we covered a lot of things, and uh, especially some of the scouting stuff that you have experience with. I had little experience with it, but every every day is a different day. But you know, it's all about doing things right and uh, paying your dues to get where you're going to be. No doubt. And I certainly appreciate you guys having me. I think this is awesome that y'all uh, y'all have this podcast. I love the name, Real Voices of the Game, and I hope y'all continue it. Uh, Dave, you've had great success with all the podcasts you have. And uh, you know what? I'm just happy to be uh, considered, I guess, a dinosaur because I wouldn't change it anything. And if I could go back and do it all again, I'd do every bit of it over. Yeah. We appreciate you coming on. And as our audience knows, you're you're our first three-time guest. You've been, this is the third show that you've been on. And each show has been different because all of our, our voices are different and the, the uh, perspective of the games are, we have the same core, but the, the way that we're presenting it is different. So we appreciate you being so, don't call yourself a dinosaur. You've been, you've been the first guest flexible enough to be on three shows. So you, you got something going on. It. You know, as Shafe taught me way back, it's the same old short stakes and bad breaks. You just keep rolling with it. <laughs> I'm going to go utility man now. You can do it utility. all. Short Short stakes and bad breaks. I'm going to put that in the show notes. So that could be the, that may be the social media plug on it. But uh, Bob, thanks so much for another great show. We got to touch them all with Bob Schaefer, episode 311 on the network. Uh, great guest today with Dan Jennings. Audience got a ton today. Uh, we hit it from a bunch of different angles. We want to thank our audience, 51,000 plus subscribers, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. If you don't give this show five stars and give great comments for Bob underneath it, I may have to take you off the subscriber list. So make sure we're doing, we're giving uh, these shows props because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in baseball. And we want to make sure that iHeartRadio knows that they made the right choice with this network, bringing it on on their already uh, growing uh, network with all these high high status people. But we're, uh, we're hanging in there. We're, we're doing some good numbers. So thanks to great hosts like Bob and guests like Dan Jennings here today. <laughs> And with that, we're going we're gonna to send us out with a little tribute to the first guy you mentioned in the episode today and his daughter. Uh, actually, that's that song with the national, Gerardo Parra. The daughter brought that national. So it's a tribute to the guy that comes in and glues it together and helps with that World Series. We're going to hand us out with Baby Shark here. Baby Shark is in my swimming pool right now. Grandpa shark, do 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 do. Grandpa shark, do 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 do. Grandpa shark, do 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 do. Grandpa shark.